Well, hello, friends. Greg Kokel here. Stand to reason. Uh, still adapting to uh, daylight savings time. And uh, just always takes me a couple of weeks, you know, maybe others as well. But I'm glad you're here. And uh, I wanted to do something here that I do every year right around this time <clears throat> with the understanding expectation that uh, young people and their parents are working on trying to decide where uh, seniors in high school are going to go to college. And so they're thinking about Christian schools and the like. And I uh, characteristically will offer what I think are the the bellwether issues, uh, concerns things you need to ask questions about if you are planning to send your young person to a a Christian school, <clears throat> a Christian college or university. And uh and this will give you a sense of of the spiritual climate that you're going to find there for your your kid. And I I I guess I've been doing this for about 15 years it seems to me, a long time. And uh, some of these details, I have one, two, three, four, five on the list now. I used to have four, and they were in a little different order. Now uh, I have five, and I realize that even this year, I'm going to add a twist to it. And the reason is, is things are changing so much. And I don't mean changing for the good. Uh, it used to be that you could, um, you could easily find a Christian college that you ha- could have full confidence would continue in th- in the things that you had been instructing your kids regarding. Now, I don't mean necessarily that they would have all the same theological stripes that you do, but there were foundational things that you could count on because they were Christian. It's like the word evangelical. Evangelical used to mean something in particular, and now it's become so broad, and it includes, it's such a broad tent, that it's, it ceases to mean what it used to mean, and it and some will say it's not even helpful anymore to use the word. And I don't know what word to use, if not that. Uh, that's what the the word I used to describe myself, but then I guess in some circles I have to qualify it. I'm a very conservative Christian. I'm theologically conservative. I'm morally conservative. Now, look, you could be Arminian or Reformed and still be theologically conservative. Uh, uh, I'm talking about foundational stuff. I'm talking about the, the kinds of things I talk about in, say, for example, the story of reality. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection, those categories, final resurrection. So that includes hell. That includes God creating everything, and that means there's an end, final resurrection to reward or punishment. All right, that's controversial. Who is Jesus? What did he came to do? That's the two questions, the person and the work of Christ. But that's controversial. Uh, There's so much confusion on this. And this is why I recently wrote a piece called The Legend of the Social Justice Jesus. Because so many people think that at least part of what Jesus' mission was, was to restore social justice in some fashion, to advocate for the poor and the outcast. He never did. Jesus never did a single time advocate for the poor and the outcast and the marginalized as such. Now, did he stand up for the woman uh, caught in adultery? Yes. But if you read this very carefully... He was not. He was not. <laughs> he was not advocating for 
marginalized people. This woman was being treated unjustly, and what he did was to, you know, outwit his enemies, because he kept the law. All the witnesses left. So, you know, there did he say anything about poor people? Yeah, not much. He certainly didn't advocate for them. I looked up every verse. So I'm just saying, when it comes to the basic things, Jesus came for a different reason, for a different purpose. He talked about it all the time, and so did everybody who talked about Jesus in the Gospels. They said the same thing. He came to save sinners. That's it. That was why he came. Does God care about the outcast and the poor? Sure. There's other passages about that. That wasn't Jesus' purpose. But the point is, when that becomes front and center, then Jesus' real purpose gets eclipsed. So my broad point here is, Christianity is changing. What what people consider to be Christian and and solidly Christian has, is rapidly changing. The sexual ethic, all of that stuff. Now, the Bible isn't changing. The truth isn't changing. What what counts for Christianity in our culture has been changing, and that's the danger signal. So then when you're going to go to a Christian school, you think you are going to go, and I'm not going to—I'm only going to name one Christian school name, I think, and it's one I, I would like to send my daughter to, partly because it's close by. But for the most part, just speaking generally— this is a challenge now because you cannot count on a Christian school being Christian. Boy, it's painful to say that. In its foundational areas. So what I've done is I've given these five categories, now the fifth one this this year. And then I'm going to add a twist. So if you want a Christian school, you need my view— be sure that you have a school that believes in the Scripture. <laughs> no, duh. Oh, we follow the Bible. Well, what do you think the Bible is? So what I'm speaking of here is inerrancy or something like it, even if they don't use the word. Is the Bible properly understood the standard? That's the question. Is this God's Word, Genesis to Revelation? Are we looking at the words themselves as God's Word to figure out what God says about these different things? There can be differences of opinion, but as long as there's an opinion, that the, the, the opinion that's shared is that this is God's Word and we're trying to figure out what He says and what He means. So that's the first one. Inerrancy. Second one has to do with Jesus and uh, has to do with the question of the issue of salvation. Now, we have a booklet at Stand to Reason that, that I did research on to put together with 100 verses that explicitly or implicitly teach from the New Testament that Jesus is the only way of salvation. In fact, I was able to gather them together in nine lines of argument that are offered. And what I was using was a technique that I described in the, was it the December Solid Ground on the legend of the social justice Jesus? I read through every path, every single verse in the New Testament, isolated verses that had to do with Jesus being the source and the unique source in, uh, of salvation. And then I shuffled them around and I saw that these kind of fit into categories. Because, for example, 
a rejection of Jesus is a rejection of the Father. You say you love God, but you don't believe in Jesus? Then the text, including Jesus in some cases, says you don't love God. Your reaction to Jesus is the acid test of what you really believe about God. All right? That's not my view. That's Jesus' view. And that's a category because of uh, principles right there, nine lines of argument. That's one line of argument because there's a bunch of verses that says the same thing. And so I gathered them together. All right? So um, <clears throat> given that the unified testimony of the New Testament documents the instruction there by everyone is that Jesus is the only way of salvation, and you must believe in him to be saved, then if a, if a so-called Christian school does not teach that, then you don't want that school. That's number two. Now, there's a hybrid here I need to clarify. If your school believes in pluralism, that is, well, all roads lead to Rome kind of thing, you don't want that. It's not Christian. Now, maybe your school teach, well, Jesus is necessary for salvation, but that doesn't mean you have to believe in him to benefit from what he did. That is the Roman Catholic view at this point, and that is called inclusivism. So, on this view, simply put, the good Jew and the good Muslim and the good Hindu and the good Buddhist, etc., etc., are under the necessary blood of Jesus, even if they don't know it. Uh, these are, uh, Karl Rahner called them anonymous Christians, okay? Um, now, that's called inclusivism, and it's just as false as pluralism. It has the same impact. It just cre- it just has a little detail, oh, Jesus is necessary, but in other words, in God's economy, his blood is necessary to forgive sins, but that doesn't have anything to do with anybody believing in him. And by the way, the good Buddhist violates the first commandment along with the good Hindu. If you are a good Hindu, that means you are an idolater. How is that, like, fine with God? There are all kinds of problems with that view. So either regular pluralism or the hybrid inclusivism, which I just described, neither are are biblical. If the school that you want to attend does not affirm that belief in Jesus is the only way of salvation, that's called exclusivism, well, then, then I, I recommend that you stay away from that school if you're looking to give your, your student a Christian education. Incidentally, I'm giving some categories here. Inerrancy, uh, Jesus is the only way, is the second, first and second there. Um, there is a difference between, oftentimes, unfortunately, between what is stated in the catalog and what happens on the campus in the classroom. This is tragic. It's dishonest, in my view. It's misleading at best, dishonest at worst. And it's a lot easier to read the catalog than to sit in a bunch of classes. So there's subterfuge going on. And I've heard of a number of cases where the catalog and the statement of faith all looks great, but when the, the, but the professors don't teach that like that. Do the professors have to sign off on a statement of faith? Some Christian schools don't require that, and they're proud of it. All right, so there's two. The third thing, which used to be the fourth thing on my list, 
fourth in importance, but now I have it third, has to do with the, um, the sexual ethic, particularly homosexuality, and whether the school is, is gay-affirming or not. Gay-affirming would be saying that homosexuality is a morally acceptable lifestyle as a Christian. Now, there may be qualifiers like if you're in a committed relationship or if you're married now since 2015, that's possible from a legal perspective, but they affirm the legitimacy of homosexuality as a Christian lifestyle. That's a gay-affirming school. You don't want that because the Bible is not gay-affirming in that sense. All human beings are made in the image of God. All human beings deserve a certain respect and latitude and liberty. That is not the same as affirming and uh, asserting the moral legitimacy of every behavior. Okay? Even gay-affirming people don't believe that everything is okay. They think if you're not gay-affirming, you're wrong. (laughs) So they're they're not affirming you in your own opinion on that. Which raises the question, if not affirming people in their views is unloving, then how is it you escape the charge yourself of being unloving if you do not escape my contrary view? I'm sorry, you do not affirm as legitimate my contrary view. Nevertheless, I've often said that Tolerance Street is a one-way street, and there's an example of it. But uh, the Bible is very clear on this issue. Um. All the attempts to liberalize the text notwithstanding, like the, the Matthew Vines, etc. And we've written about this at Stand to Reason, um, and in our Solid Grounds in the past, we, we, I've, we've given talks on this, Alan Schleeman has done a lot of work here. Uh, we can still hold God's standard and be loving in a biblical fashion, and we ought to, in both, all right? But love, remember, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Okay, so that's the third thing. If you've got a a school that is flirting with being gay-affirming, then you don't want that school, my opinion. Okay, the third, the fourth thing, which used to be third, is the view on evolution. Now, um, as we're Going down this list, I, I think there, in a certain sense, there's a little bit of descending significance. Um, the view of the Bible is paramount because everything else flows from that. And if you have a high view of Scripture, you're not going to be faltering, I think, in these other areas. Though there's, you know, you're going to have some differences with people. Um uh, and so this, and this Jesus, the inerrancy of Scripture and Jesus being the only way, those are like, those are like um, foundation stones, they're cornerstones, okay? The homosexuality issue tells me whether that organization, that school, cares more about what culture thinks about them than what God thinks about them. So it, it measures a little different factor in there. The theistic evolution is the fourth one. It used to be third, now it's four. Um, because I think this has ramifications theologically for important issues. Um, 
I know that there are a lot of people that I'm pretty certain are Christians who are theistic evolutionists. I do not use that as a litmus test test for authenticity. However, there are all kinds of theological, nor, nor by the way, inerrancy. A person can be a born-again Christian and not believe in inerrancy. And probably not believe that Jesus is the only way, though I think that creates other, other, wait, I'd have to think about that for a bit. But people can make lots of theological mistakes and still be regenerate, all right? I just think theistic evolution is false. I think the Darwinian model, the neo-Darwinian synthesis, fails on the merits, the scientific merits, all, all theological considerations aside. It fails on the merits, okay? So, uh, and then, so why try to marry a failed scientific um, point of view to Christianity? Um, and then the question is, can it be properly married? Regardless of the merits of the view on its own, can it be married to Christianity? And I don't think it can be. And a massive tome came out about, was it two years ago now, Amy? called Theistic Evolution, and it was a critique of it. And there's a section on science, big giant section, Stephen Meyer was in charge of that, a philosophical section, which uh, J.P. Moreland was in charge of, and then a, 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 a theological section that, um, I always struggle with his name, the, <laughs> I'll get it in a minute, no, Amy will get it in a minute. Yeah, Wayne Grudem, thank you, Amy. That Wayne Grudem did. Now, Wayne Grudem, in his section that he edits with all the other con- contributors, um, well, the whole assessment, which I wrote an endorsement of for that book, and I read it, is big, eviscerates theistic evolution, in my view. It eviscerates it on every level, on the scientific level, on the philosophic level, and the theological level. So if you embrace this, then you have all these other problems, not just the scientific ones. You have philosophical challenges that uh, th- that you have to deal with, but but biblical ones as well. So uh, that's a big one. That's the fourth one. Now here's the fifth one: inerrancy. Jesus is the only way. Not gay friendly. Not supporting theistic evolution. That to put all of these criterion in. N- in kind of the negative side. Um, the last one's critical race theory, CRT. Now, that's, that's kind of a newbie, right? Uh, well, it's been around for a while, but it has just recently, in the last two years, begun to absolutely infect the entire educational system, and Christian schools have not been able to sidestep that. And, uh, by the way, a lot of times it's not called critical race theory. People say, wave their hand, oh, we don't teach that stuff. Well, yes, you do. You just don't call it that. You call it EID, equity, I'm sorry, equality, inclusiveness, and diversity. Or some form, you know, those three. You can be DEI, DIE, you know, whatever. It's all the same. It's the same. And it's an indoctrination of a leftist uh, understanding of culture that is not accurate to the culture. Look at if, if if these things were true, I have no trouble having having those things taught. I don't think they're true the way they're being taught. But it's very difficult 
since now we have a government that's deeply committed to this kind of indoctrination. The government is committed to indoctrinating your kids. And if any so-called Christian school is in bed with the government, how would they be in bed with the government? They take the government's money. Then they have to step to the government's tune on a whole host of things. Look at it. I'm not going to say the name of the school, but 10 days ago, I was with a Christian parent who told me that at this particular school, which almost every one of you will recognize the name, it's not like the biggest name in Christian schools, but it's fairly well known. It's actually rather large now. And this this father's son was a student at the school living in the dorm, and it turned out that his roommate was a homosexual who was having his boyfriend over. And so, out of concern for the spiritual life of this Christian brother who was rooming with the Christian student, the son of the father who told me this, the Christian student spoke to the roommate from Scripture about what was proper in terms of his sexual behavior. The student, his roommate, got furious and as a result of him simply talking with his Christian brother, who is his roommate, about the impropriety of homosexual behavior as a Christian, he was the, the, the son of the father that was telling me this. This dear Christian brother was slapped with a Title IX violation. A Title IX, wait, that's about like women's sports, right? Yeah, but women's sports don't exist anymore. You know that because there's no such thing as a woman anymore. Not on their view. This is like totally flexible, totally fluid. And so if you start talking to somebody else about anything about their sexuality being inappropriate, especially if it's a gay guy, man, that is a violation. And so the school had to prosecute the Title IX violation. I'm not making this up. It's just like 11 days old to me. 10 days, not even that. Nine days old when I was talking with this person. The school had to prosecute the Title IX violation, which was was draconian in light of what had happened, in my view, what happened to the Christian student, the real Christian student, because the government required it. They were in bed with the government to the degree that they had to step to, hop to, I should say, or else they'd be in big trouble. They'd lose funding. Just saying. And that's happening. That's part of the problem with CRT. Critical race theory or its ugly stepsisters. You have no idea how many organizations, I've talked about some of them, are, 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 uh, are, are drinking that Kool-Aid. Salvation Army. World Vision. University. This is what I heard from people who are in the know. I know about Salvation Army directly, but the others and others and others. And I'm asking myself, who is escaping this? If you have a school that you want to send your kid to that's flirting with this stuff, this is not good. Now, my twist. Close these thoughts off. I know you have a caller. So, Kokel, you're saying you want... For a Christian school, you want a school committed to inerrancy, yes. Committed to Jesus being the only way, yes. Committed to biblical 
sexual ethics, not gay friendly, yes, committed, uh, let's see, how would I put this then, Uh, in the negative, not promoting theistic evolution, yes, and not promoting in one form or another critical race theory, yes. Wow. Where is such a school? And the answer is they almost don't exist anymore. They almost don't exist. There are a few. There are a few. But they are really rare. Okay? Now, I said I'd mention one. It was one I spoke at earlier this year. It was Masters University, John MacArthur's school. Those guys are fabulous. They are a true blue. And there are other true blues. But I, I'm just not going to give you a whole list. But there's not many of them. But I, that's one. That's not far from. I hope, I'd love to send my daughter there. My 14-year-old. Three years hence. But there's not many. And again, I don't want to go through. I, I, I want to tip my hat to masters because I, I'm so impressed with those. With the school, with the students and everything. And I told them that. I said, man, you guys will be true blue. 50 years from now, probably. I don't know. They are now. And so, but there are so many others that are casualties to any or all of these things that now I'm going to offer an odd recommendation. And the recommendation is, if you want to send your child to a Christian school and keep these things in mind, do not think of hardly any Christian school as a Christian school. Think about so-called Christian schools as secular schools with lots of Christians. <laughs> because it's very hard to find a Christian school that is thoroughgoing in its commitment to biblical Christianity and doesn't have a lot of all this other nonsense as part of their curriculum or part of their community life. I think I told you last year sometime about, yeah, I did, last summer after coming back about a school in the Midwest, a Christian school, <laughs> Christian college that had a gay Bible study. Why would, why would wanna, somebody want to build a Bible study around someone's sexual appetites? Does that sound weird to you? I can see a singles Bible study or a married couple's Bible study. Those are relational things in there. But why would you build a Bible study around somebody's sexual appetites? Do we have adultery Bible studies? Does that make any sense? But this was in a, in a Christian school. So this is how crazy it's gotten. All right? And it's like nobody batted an eye about this notion. They thought the young people that were explaining this to me did think it was wrong, but it wasn't, like, bizarre. But it ought to be considered bizarre, because it is bizarre. So, here's the thing. Be mindful of these five things, no matter where you... When you're thinking about choosing a, a less secular environment for your student than secular universities... Because you know you're going to get garbage there. And uh, I... Man, good luck. Don't waste your money. That's my view. Secular schools. 
Send your kids to plumbing school, noble profession. Although physics now is even, you know, influenced by CRT. It's crazy. But probably the best way to look at it is that you're going to send your kid to a school where there are more Christians than not, and that's going to be good, even if the school itself is not a thoroughgoing Christian school. That's the twist. (laughs) There are going to be places where, you know, they'll be able to hang out with people who genuinely love the Lord, that they're real Christians, and more than per capita than in a secular school. But that doesn't mean you're not going to get a secular environment at a so-called Christian school, with very, very, very few exceptions nowadays, when you consider the broad number of Christian schools out there, very few exceptions, you're going to have a secular environment with lots of Christians. And it may be that that's the best that you can do. All right, let's take a break. Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. More in a moment. Did you know Stand to Reason has a YouTube channel? We release a new video each Monday on the topics you care about. Through short, engaging videos, our speakers train you on tactics, offer apologetics tips, answer common theology questions, and address big issues in the world today. Join tens of thousands of other subscribers so you can stay up to date when we release a new video. Just go to YouTube.com and search STR Videos, all one word, and hit the subscribe button. That's STR Videos. Take advantage of this free resource to help you stay informed, encouraged, and equipped as you share your worldview with others. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Alrighty, that's a wake-up call. For some reason, every time I walk into this room, my camera goes tilt down, right? So I got to fix it. We got to do something about that. <clears throat> so if you're watching a video, then you know what happened. We got a droopy camera. All right. All right, let's go to Joe in Mountain View. And is that Mountain View, California, or is that Mountain View, Arkansas, or where is that? California. Oh, okay. I think there is a Mountain View, Missouri or Arkansas, right there by the border, which is, you know, a bunch of bass lakes there. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. What's on your mind, Joe? Well, I have a fun question, speculative, and I've 
wondered if Jesus currently has a physical body or is an immaterial, uh, existing immaterially right now. And I had always used Colossians 2.9, which says that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form to argue for a currently physical body, Mm -hmm. and Paul wrote that after the resurrection, and he's using a present tense verb, so, um, but recently I, he's, uh, recently I heard or read William Lane Craig's opinion, and he thinks a, an immaterial, uh, state is more likely so that Jesus can be in communion with the disembodied saints awaiting resurrection. Yeah. Uh, did you read that on, like, the weekly letter or whatever question for Bill Craig? That, yes, uh, on, his, right. on his website. Now, this is interesting because Amy and I were just talking about this, um, anticipating your your question, because you were on board here waiting. And uh, I was trying to remember where I had read about this, and, and I thought, I think it's Bill Craig's letter. So you and I read the same thing. And um, I think this is a hard one to answer. Um, I have Colossians 2 in front of me, and uh, in there, verse 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Okay, now this, the question though, what is the nature of that body that deity dwells in. Okay, now remember that the incarnation is an adding of a human nature to the divine nature. So we have the person, one person, this is the Chalcedonian formula, we have one person with two natures, all right? And uh, we have the, the one person who is the second person of the Godhead, who adds to his divine nature a human nature, and um, and that human nature includes a human body, because human bodies are part of the full human, okay? And right. so when Paul says, here we have the fullness of deity that dwells in bodily form, he is referring to that. Now, you're right, he's, he's speaking after the resurrection, uh, but th- that would, in a certain sense, oh, I just, oh, I was, if I say this, it sounds like a pun, but I'm not doing it. On purpose, in a certain sense, that detail is immaterial, <laughs> because uh, Jesus was in a bodily form then when he was on the earth, and then that body took on a different quality, but it was still a bodily form. So he still is has a human body, but it is a resurrected body. Okay, and now this is what Bill Craig kind of banties about a bit, and I. I was. I thought that his reflection on First uh, Corinthians fifteen was interesting, and it got me thinking about things. Part of what he was saying is is that it is the nature that is human. Okay, the nature is human, and so mm-hmm. Jesus has that human nature before the resurrection and after the resurrection. The problem is, is the nature is immaterial. And so that doesn't answer the question about the body, though. He seems to be a little dismissive of having a physical body at at the current time, for whatever reasons he offers, and he does do some interesting work with 1 Corinthians 15. 
but I'm not convinced by his argument, though I, I'm sympathetic to him trying to work this out. And I actually think this is a bit of an imponderable, all right? There are certain things I think we can, we can say for sure about this issue, but it isn't like all of those things that we know, all those pieces can be plugged together into a unified whole to resolve any questions we have. I don't think that can be done now, um, and I don't think that Bill does it. Uh, what we know is that Jesus had a human body, and he was raised with a glorified human body. But this glorified human body that he had looked like him. It was recognizable. It had the marks of his crucifixion on it, in his hands, his feet, and on his side. Okay? Um right. This body was able to be localized, road to Emmaus, the upper room, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and there's interaction with this human being, human body, as it were, and that body could also eat, and he did eat. Okay, so these are all things that are characteristic of what we would understand to be a regular physical body, but then he disappeared. People say he walked through the wall, he could walk through walls. I I don't know that he walked through a wall. It doesn't say that, it just said he's gone. So what what kind of physical body can de... I'm going to use the word now, dematerialize, and be gone, whether it's at the road to Emmaus, or whether it's uh, there in... Um, you know, at uh, the upper room, or whether wherever it is. Now, when he finally was ascended into heaven, he went up, right? He just kept mm-hmm. going up, and they could see him. His physical body, that body that they saw, the resurrected body, went up. But it was manifest, that same physical body was manifest in a different way in the book of Revelation. Okay, there was more glory kind of associated with it in the book of Revelation. So what you have is you've got these disparate pieces of information that the Bible gives us, and it, none of it seems to add up in a tidy fashion. First Corinthians 15, Paul talks about, yeah, there's, well, yeah, there's this, you know, there are different—actually, uh, I don't even understand it. When I read First Corinthians 15, it's like I told— Amy, it's kind of like Swahili to me. I, I can read the words, but I, I, I don't really, really get it. You know, I don't—that uh, was a passage that Bill Craig was dealing with here. Um, he says, uh, someone will say, how are the dead raised, and what kind of body do they come from? I'm reading verse 35 and following here in First Corinthians 15. You fool! That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body just as he wished, to each of the seeds a body of his own. And then he talks about all flesh is not the same flesh, and there are heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, and, you know, there is one glory from the sun, another glory of the moon, and, uh, oh, man— so as is the resurrection of the dead, it sows a perishable body, it's raised an imperishable body. Now, it's a body, but one mm-hmm. is perishable, the other one's imperishable. There's another piece of the puzzle. But it's still a body, and it's not like there's some significant difference. But I can't get down to the basis of the difference. 
So if you ask, where is Jesus right now? Well, he's got a physical body, but that it's not the kind of physical—here's the way I would answer it. I don't think it's the kind of physical body that requires a physical space to be in. All ordinary physical objects have three-dimensional—they they have a location in three-dimensional space. But Jesus doesn't seem to have that. I don't think he's sitting on the moon somewhere, or Kolob, or Mars, or somewhere else. Uh, I think that he is at the right hand of the Father, whatever that means. <laughs> is that a spatial location of some sort? Uh, I don't know. I just don't know. I honestly don't know. And well, what so, if it's a, sir? What if it's a both and? He maintains a physical body somewhere in the universe, but he leaves his body and and can communicate with the immaterial saints. Oh, I don't know why, if this is Bill's argument, I don't know why a material individual can is limited to communicate with the immaterial saints. I, I don't get that. You know, we're, mm. God is spirit, but we talk to God, and God in some cases talks back. Okay. I mean, that's what pr- legitimate prophecy is. So I, I don't understand why our physicality, or even Jesus' physicality, represents a liability for him communicating with saints who are not yet joined in their resurrection body. That just doesn't make sense to me. Mm. You know, so I I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say about that. I, I, I tell you what, I'm not comfortable uh, with uh, Jesus' <laughs> physical body being one place and then his, his, his soul going somewhere else having an out-of-body experience. No, I, I think he's, he's a whole individual. But I think the physical body that he has is a glorified physical body. That means it has different attributes. As Amy mentioned earlier, look, at the grave was empty. That's because that physical body was raised imperishable. And that physical body that used to be there is now transformed into an imperishable body, just as ours will be. And, uh, and that has unique characteristics, which are really hard to pin down. I mean, well, it seemed. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. Oh, really? I was uncomfortable with the idea that that humanity that Jesus could put on and put take off his physicality. Um, yeah. Yeah. Over well, I, and over, it yeah. didn't seem to conform with my idea that Jesus became became human mm-hmm. and part of being human is physical. Right. But yet, you have said many times that we are not our bodies. So... Well, we have to be careful, you know, like, when we start being philosophical and theologically really, really precise, um, our bodies are part of our humanity, but they are not the, they are not the uh, locus of our egos, ourselves. Because when our bodies die then to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the locus of the self is in the soul. You can right. be present with the Lord even though your body is in the grave. But God's purpose was that the two be one, and that's why 
Paul says, our body, we groan waiting to be clothed, because we don't want to be unclothed. And what he's speaking of there is the communion or the union of the soul with the body. At death, the soul is torn in an unnatural way from the human body. There's a there's a renting of sorts that goes on. And uh, that is an unnatural kind of circumstance. That isn't the way it was originally intended, as far as I can tell. But in any event, uh, there will be a reunion of the soul with the body, okay, at the resurrection. So we will then be clothed by our physical selves, and that would be a full and complete human being, I guess is the way I'd want to say it now. Yeah. That makes sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. Well, it, it makes sense as far as I can make it make sense. Let's put it that way. But there's a huge lacuna here. There's a big hole, in my view, um, as to how to understand that. And this is stuff, well, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll wait around and see what happens, you know. Right. When it all gets resolved. Uh, I don't, I, I tend to be careful about trying to be creative with ideas or or be be dogmatic about it. Nothing wrong with taking a shot, all right, and trying to explain it. Maybe it's like this, maybe it's like that, but I'm not going to hang too tightly onto that stuff that's really speculative. And what I do not want to do is I want to do anything that will undermine the the uh, the full humanity of Christ, right, and uh, or the full deity for that matter. But that's not what's in question right now. So. You know, when I get closer to these issues, I go, well, there's a couple things I know here, and we just talked about them. My, there's this, and there's that, and there's the other thing, but how that all fits together, I got a big shrug. <laughs> yeah, and that's the best I can do, and that's okay for me, and I hope that helps you a little bit, too. Thanks. It was fun discussing this, it was these fun. ideas with you. It was fun for me, too. Joe, where's Mountain View again? It's um, where in California in the Bay Area. Oh, okay. Uh, north, north of San Jose. North of where? San Jose. Oh, okay. Oh, so you're you're oh, right in the Bay Area. Are you East Bay or West Bay? In the on the peninsula. The West Peninsula. Okay. Yeah. On the peninsula, like by Stanfordish, somewhere. Right. In, yeah. Just, yeah. Just, just south of Stanford. Oh, uh, gotcha. Okay, Palo Alto area. Okay. Hey, great talking to you, Joe. Great talking with you. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks for all you do. Oh, you're so welcome. But take care. Thanks. Bye. All right, friends, that kind of wraps it up for the show. Does it? There it is. <laughs> My colleagues are looking at me. Thanks for listening, friends. Greg Kokel here for Stand a Reason. Give them heaven. Bye-bye now. <laughs> 